Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 125. Last episode, we heard how the Battle of Kral near Pares had ended, where Mzilikatsi's second-in-command, Kalipi, and his force of 500 men had been repulsed in a closely fought affair. This was an important clash, pitting Andris Pothita's second-in-command and brother-in-law, Piet Boerter, against Kalipi, was responsible for the entire southern reaches of Mzilikatsi's territory. They had tried to overrun the Voortrekkers, but had decimated the Liebenbach party a few kilometres upriver, catching the small group unawares. That was also after destroying the Erasmus party and its wagons, although Pietrus Erasmus and one of his sons, as well as Pieter Becker, had made their escape. But Erasmus had no idea what had happened to his other two sons. They were missing. The group that was virtually wiped out was the Liebenbach party under command of Gottlieb Liebenbach Sr., a 71-year-old man who'd left the Colesburg district seeking greener pastures. The Trek party was made up of his wife, four sons and a daughter, all of whom were married, along with 21 children and a Scottish meester or schoolmaster called MacDonald. Liebenbach's trek had been overrun by a section of the Amma and Debele, the Boers desperately rushing to pull their wagons together as the warriors descended. The first inkling that the main Voortrekker party had of their fate was a Dusselboom that Boerter's lager had seen being dragged past by oxen, as you heard last episode. Inkelepi had sent a smaller force onwards to launch this assault on the little Boer party. At the same time, he had attacked the larger Kupis Kral lager. All six of the Liebenbach men were killed, along with twelve of the Khoisan servants. Two of the women were killed and six of the twenty-one children. The others were saved by a miraculous intervention, further strengthening the narrative about chosen people. After searching for van Rensburg and meeting up with Louis Trichard, Pochita, his brother Nicolas, along with Sarl Solirus and five other men, had turned their wagon around and headed back to the Waal. Portkita allowed Nicolas and the other five to gallop ahead, and Janse van Vieren, Aardelange, C. Liebenberg and D. Opperman, along with them, Meneer Swanepoel, took off, happy to be almost back with loved ones. Behind them, old man Portkita and Sarl Solius followed at a more leisurely pace. As the lead group approached the Waal, Opperman saw a boer wagon in the river, and looking down, they spotted Trekker and Khoisan bodies on the river bank. Then they saw the Amma and Debele warriors. They had interrupted the attack. The warriors were still ransacking the Liebenbach camp, and the Boers charged. The warriors broke and ran. One of the women and four children were hiding in a wagon, terrified out of their wits. Eleven other children survived, as well as three of the women, although all of them had received multiple wounds from Indebelli's spears. One of the women had been stabbed twenty-one times. It was carnage, and the survivors were horrified and grief-stricken. The area was immediately renamed Liebenbach Kopi. The wounded, destitute and in pain managed to make it to the Kopi's Kral lager, which was also badly damaged. Meanwhile, Erasmus returned to his wagon further southwest, searching for his children, finding nothing except dead servants whom he buried. Then, nervous that the Ndebele would return, he galloped back to Kopi's Kral. Ndebele commander Kalipi had been defeated in his attempt at seizing the biggest lager with all the booty there, but thought he had enough loot to return to Mzilikazi. The Trek Boers did not know that Kalipi had seized Erasmus's two other sons and Karl Kriya alive, 
and were dragging them back to Mzilikazi's town of Masecha, along with five of his wagons, which they were pulling by hand across the felt. But the three Boers didn't live long. When they tried to escape, Kalipi's second-in-command, Zatini, hunted them down and executed them. Erasmus knew none of this, but his life shattered anyway. He turned around and, with his surviving son, rode back to Colesburg. His elephant-hunting-slash-land reconnaissance had turned into a disaster. When Hendrik Portgieter finally joined the Kupiskral lager cantering into camp on the 2nd of September, he found that his people were in two minds about what to do next. They had already recrossed the Vaal to the south bank on the 31st of August and explained to their leader what had happened. The Trekker movement had suffered a severe blow which had brought the entire enterprise into question. For a handful it was too much. They split away and headed back south to Tabanchu, but most decided to stand their ground in northern Transorangia. They buried their dead, and after Sarol Salius led them in prayer, the poor trekkers turned east, trekking up the Ranosta Rafir towards its source, and then encamped at a small hill called Durnkop. That lies between the Ranosta and Vilcha rivers, and this place will go down in history as the Battle of Fechkop. At first they appeared to be in shock, because the families scattered across the felt, looking for the best grazing for the animals, seemingly unaware that the Amma and Debeli may come back. But Portgita and Salirs knew they would. Back at Moseja, near the Mariko River, Mzilikazi was indeed planning a second major assault. This was 300 kilometers away. People moved fast in these days. He wanted the Boers crushed so that none would ever enter his country again, determined to eliminate what he correctly perceived as a real threat to his rule over this valuable land. He mobilized as many of his men as he could. Living with him were American missionaries Dr. Alexander Wilson, Daniel Lindley, and Henry Venables. They had all been shocked when the Indibeli returned with the Boer wagons and cattle, hearing that Stephanus Erasmus's camp was destroyed and his children killed. They were even more horrified when they heard that Mzilikazi was sending thousands of his men back to finish the job. While some have said that Mzilikazi was to mobilize 6,000 warriors, historians believe the number was 2,000. Inkalipi was placed in charge once more and received strict instructions. All the Boer men and boys were to be killed, but the women and girls were to be spared and brought back to Mosecha, along with all the foot trekkers, herds of cattle and sheep. A classic Amma Indebeli raid. Kill the possible threats, the men and boys, bring the valuable women and girls back to the king. Meanwhile, Portkita and Salir sent word to all foot-trekkers further south to be on the lookout. There was war afoot. All the Boers who'd crossed the Vaal River and survived the first attacks must now head south to Hienungsrafir, near modern-day Heilbronn. Other trekkers were still in two mines. Should they remain? Or try to re-enter the Cape Colony where the English waited? Would they be punished for leaving without permission? An interesting note here, folks. No one wrote down what happened until decades later when the Furtrekkers' memoirs were written as old men and women. This was partly because the Furtrekkers were operating as a classic group of African nomads on the felt. They kept their stories oral. Oddly enough, Ndebele oral history about this time is also patchy, and when you hear what happened later to this marauding group of ex-Zululand warriors, you'll understand why. However, we know enough to piece together what became known as the Battle of Fechkop, because it's really extraordinary, and another of those seminal South African stories that forms the core 
of the history. It's a narrative storytelling and therefore the very kernel of culture. Port Kitty and Silius began fortifying their defences. The men chained the wagons together and then cut thorn bushes to use as a form of barbed wire, filling all the spaces between their fifty wagons and between the wooden spokes of the wheels. A technique known as zarebas. This would stop the warriors from being able to creep into the lager. Thorn bushes used in this manner are still common across Africa, deployed to protect livestock and fields from predators. There were 40 men and boys that would carry arms in Portkita's lager, including the 12-year-old Paul Creo. The lager was located just below a kopi that would become known as Fachkop, about a kilometre long with a mimosa bush here and there. Boer observers were placed on the hill and these could see many kilometres in all directions. There would be no surprise attack here, unlike the Amma and Debeli's previous assaults on the Furtrekkers. The hill had been important in ancient times too. It's covered with the stone ruins that are scattered across the Haarfeld. As I've mentioned, these people predated the Amma and Debeli, the Baralong, the Huruchi, the Butlokwa. Fascinating! Their stone towns and villages are some of the most significant structures in southern Africa, and as promised, I'll deal with them in a special podcast later. Back to the lager. It was drawn up in a square, not the usual circle. Portkita hoped the square would provide overlapping fields of fire and make it easier to spot the enemy's approach. The Ama and Debeli were likely going to assault from the south, he correctly assumed, over a small stream and up a slightly sloping piece of ground towards the wagons a few hundred metres away at the base of the kopi. Port Heater wanted the women and children and the wounded to be protected inside four wagons that were lashed together and placed in the centre of the lager. Logs and skins were placed over the top to protect against fire. He also had the horses saddled and ready for their counter-attack should they survive the first assaults. Then he built small wooden skitwalken or shooting cages at the corners of the lager, which provided the men with extra cover from the assegais. Finally, two openings about the size of a wagon each were left as gates so that they could come and go until the feared day of attack. Two wagons were ready to be pulled into the spaces and their axles were greased to ensure they'd roll quickly. Then Portita sat back and surveyed what looked like an almost impenetrable position. Looking out... He realised the grass was too high, so he had the cattle driven across the space between the wagons and the stream, dragging logs behind them, which flattened the vegetation. There would be no place to hide for the Amman Debeli. At no point did the Fuertrecker leadership consider the other option, which was to give up their dream of independence and head back to the Cape. They knew their leaders would be arrested for departing into the interior without permission. They also knew that the English way of life was not for them. It was too late to attempt a rush towards the south anyway, they'd be cut down in the open felt. So it was going to be a bitter fight to the end. Salirs reinforced that view with his preaching, saying that if God protected them from the coming clash, then the Fuertrekkers would indeed be one of the Israelites, God's chosen few. Portkita knew that kneeling and praying wasn't going to win any war. He was far busier thinking about the details. The lager buzzed with activity as they melted down most of their metal goods to be used as bullets. They sewed small buckskin bags together, stuffing a handful of smaller rounds into these, which would be fired and turn into a kind of devil's bugshot. The men filled their crate whirrings, their powder horns, and cleaned and recleaned their sanas, their snafani, the muskets. These were stacked together in groups of at least three per man, each loaded and ready for action. 
They were huge, these weapons, about as long as a man is tall, some weighing more than 15 kilograms. The men could fire at least six shots a minute using these massive weapons. The women, the children, and the achtereas, their coloured servants, acted as reloaders. Unfortunately, the Boers would have to leave their thousands of head of cattle and sheep outside. These were going to be written off. Patrols would ride out every day through the end of September 1836, but these came back day after day with no word about the Amandebele. That changed on the 19th of October, as the sun began to set. A Tlokwa scouting party appeared at the lager. They were afraid and had seen a large impi of Indebele. Just as an aside, some of the Fuertrecker stories that were written down years later contradicted the date. Some said it was the 16th, others the 18th. However, the later date is generally preferred, so we'll stick with the 19th October 1836. Port let the Amatlokwa into the lager and they explained that the army had been sent to crush the Fuertrekkers and wasn't far away, perhaps 20 kilometers. They were also told there were thousands of warriors, 6,000, said the Matlokwa. The women began to cry and wail. They knew they had melted thousands of bullets, but not 6,000. They didn't have enough ammunition. Salias called everyone together, these 170 men, women, children and servants, and prayed for mercy. Portita then led the men to ready themselves for the fight of their lives. Portita, Salias and Joachim Buerta decided to go and see for themselves, riding out from the lager towards the Amandebele. Following the Patloko directions, they came across the Indebele nine kilometers away, cooking their evening meals. Portkita counted the fires and reckoned there would be 5,000 men attacking the lager the next day. As I've said, it was more like 2,000. But when you only have 40 men and boys doing the shooting, an attacking force of 2,000 is obviously more than enough. They galloped back to the wagons and informed the Boers to ready themselves. That night was tense. Boer sentries staring out into the dark, every sound causing a rush of fear. On the morning of the 20th, as dawn broke, Portkita and Salias thought they should ride out and try and discourage the Amandabeli from attacking, leading a party of around 30 men that took off towards the Amandabeli camp. Portkita wanted to negotiate some sort of peace. It didn't take long. The Amandabeli were on their move already. The Amandabeli were on the move already, and the small group of Boers came across the Impi sitting on their haunches only an hour away. Each regiment was drawn up, clearly delineated by the colour of their shields. Nkalibir was at their head. They had sharpened their assegais. Each warrior also carried an nduka, a nobkiri, used to smash the skulls of men who'd been stabbed as the coup de grace. In the same hand, they held at least one throwing spear with a 15-centimeter-long blade. Each warrior held a stabbing spear, the Amandabele called an isika, in the other hand, the right hand. The isika is the cutter, its blade over 30 centimeters long. Two thousand of these warriors were crouching silently, a mesmerizing view to their prey, the food trekkers. The Ama Indebeli watched Port Hita approach, and then began to make the sound of wind blowing in grass, or water poured on hot rock. <laughs> the sound grew louder the closer Port Hita and his men came. The Boers stopped a couple of hundred meters away, dismounted and waved their hats and muskets. It is thought that Port Hita had actually surprised Kalipi, he was going to adopt the classic Indebele dawn attack the following day. Portkita's scouting party had caught him unawares. Usually, after a march of 20 kilometers, the Amandebele, like the Zulu and the other Zululand-based armies, would rest overnight near their target, then begin their assault as the sun rose the next day. 
The foretrekkers in turn had miscalculated what was going on, and Kalipi's order that the men gather on their haunches was part of an assault. The men would squat down so they could see their commander and hear his voice. But the foretrekkers thought they were standing down. They were actually like a loaded spring down, but about to jump up. Portkita shouted, What have we done to you? Why have you come to kill and murder us? A Khoisan interpreter standing alongside Portkita yelled in Zulu, which is similar to in Debele. And Kalipi shouted back, Mzalakati alone issues commands. We are his servants and we do his bidding. We are not here to discuss or argue. We are here to kill you. With that, the 2,000 warriors leapt to their feet and began yelling, Mzalakati, Mzalakati, Mzalakati. And some hurled their throwing spears at the Boers. The four trickers remounted and sped back to the lager. There wasn't a moment to lose. On the way, they dismounted again, turned at the tide of warriors, speeding towards them and fired off a volley, killing a number of the attackers. This was the classic Boer fighting retreat we've heard about. Still, the Amandabeli did not stumble. The MP sprinted onwards, so the Boers galloped another 50 meters, dismounted again, fired once more. The Amandabeli stopped sprinting and formed up in their group attack formation, regiment by regiment, well drilled and disciplined. These were the people who had crushed most Africans across the Haarfeld. They were at the apex of their power, led by commanders who had learned their military arts in Zululand fighting the Mtetwa. Some of these men began to work around the sides of Putkita's party, who fired and stopped them from throwing their spears. More Ama and Debele were killed. This was starting to have an effect. The Boers repeated the shooting technique at least a dozen times, according to survivors of this battle. Admittedly, they were telling the story many years later, but we have no reason to believe this wasn't true, Dama and Debele confirmed. Dozens, perhaps as many as 200 Dama and Debele had been killed, and Portkita and his men managed to make it back to the lager. This initial skirmish had lasted three hours. More than 500 bullets had been fired at the Dama and Debele. They had already caused significant casualties. The Dama and Debele in turn were not used to this kind of casualty rate, but they did not falter, at least at this point. Something else is important to explain. Portkita and his men knew that the Amandabeli commanders wore blue crane feathers, and the Boers were systematically picking off these commanders. Like in Cleodie's attack on Grahamstown in 1819, it was by targeting the leadership that the handful of colonists and soldiers had managed to cause confusion amongst the Amakosa attackers. But there's only so much ammunition one person can carry on a horse, and Portkita's party was beginning to run out. Three of Portita's men, Court Flores Fissa, Martinez van der Merwe Jr. and Low Duplessis, didn't stop. They galloped past the lager and kept going. They were so afraid that they wanted to put as much distance between themselves and the warriors thundering towards them. They reappeared much later and from then on were stamped with the character of Lafarts, cowards. Dama and Abeli stopped again. They had broken into three distinct sections across the stream and clearly visible to all inside the lager, who had a view down towards this little river across the flattened grass and bush. There were a total of 40 men and boys facing over 2,000 warriors. The odds were not in the foretrekkers' favour. And by now, the Amma and Debele knew what this lager contraption was, having faced one of these fancy defensive points and been driven away by Boerte and Stain a few weeks earlier. Kalipi believed that his weight of numbers made it inevitable that he would crush the 170 men, women and children. A few of the women and even the Khoisan Akhtarayas had armed themselves. Anyone who could shoot was thrown a weapon. 
this was no time for niceties about whether or not women or Khoisan should fight. Most of the other women would be loading and rinsing the liars, the muskets, cleaning them ready for the next shot, or they'd become clogged with burned gunpowder. Three shots a minute was the average. Some Boers could notch up to four. They'd need every shot. As the murmuring sound of the Amandebeli wafted towards the lager, Sarul Salirs gathered the folk together for one more prayer. They all fell to their knees. He pleaded with God not to forsake them in their hour of need and to give them strength to resist their enemies. Just to add a bit of oomph, he read loudly from Psalm 50, verse 15, And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Portkita walked among the gathered throng, muttering words of support, encouraging the women who were crying silently. For the Amandebele, a strange sound then emerged from the lager. All 170 men, women, children, and servants began singing Psalm 120, verse 1, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Then they were done, and Silius ordered in a soft but clear voice that none of the women or children should make a sound as the battle started. It would throw the men off their shots. And Kalipi had set up his main force in the center, and the two horns on either side. The Amandebele were ready, but appeared to be in no rush. They had run nearly eight kilometers from the initial skirmish with Potkita. They were drawing breath. The three sections moved to within 300 meters of the lager, then sat down. It was a hot day. The sun blazed upon the warriors and the lager, and everything seemed to be suspended. Except for the sound of warriors sharpening their blades on the rocks, setting the teeth on edge, there was no other sound. No talking, no singing, nothing. Then a handful of Amandebele trotted off to where the Fuertrecker cattle grazed and butchered a few, eating the meat raw. This version of Amandebele beef carpaccio was another shock to the Fuertrecker system. They looked on, scarcely able to believe what they were seeing. The Amandebele then took off their leather sandals and threw them on a large pile. They could slip on these as they thrust and parried and preferred to go into battle in bare feet. At this point, some Trekker storytellers say that Portita tried to force the Amandebele to attack. He couldn't stand the tension, so he waved a red flag around on the end of a long stick. I'm convinced that's a tall story, but many tell it, so I'm mentioning it. What is more likely is that Portita was staring carefully at the Amandebele regiments, the men, and telling his men who to shoot first, who looked the most important. Aim at the men with the blue crane feathers. I really don't think he'd be fiddling around trying to be cute with a stick and a red flag. And Kalipi, on the other hand, had his prey right where he wanted them. It was noon when Kalipi abruptly gave a command, and in an instant the two thousand warriors leapt to their feet and charged straight at the lager. It was as sudden as that. As they ran, they let off blood-curdling screams and beat their shields with their spears in unison, the sound like a giant drum or a bomb going off. Then they hissed together and shouted, Mzilikatse! Mzilikatse! as if the king would give them more power. This was the start of the first real full-scale battle between a large group of Boers inside a lager and an African army of the interior. Mzilikatse's men were not using 300 muskets he'd collected. We don't know why. Perhaps the old-fashioned commanders thought they were irrelevant to the Amandebele way of war. And Kalipi was using a very old tactic deployed by the Zulu, then Dwandwe, that Kwabi, which was to charge straight at the enclosure of a homestead, overcome the occupants as quickly as possible, kill everyone inside in hand-to-hand fighting, bar the women and girls, of course. Usually this form of a charge was over in a few minutes. 
As the warriors approached the wagons, they began to bunch together tightly until they were shoulder to shoulder, and in this manner were unable to take evasive action and were an easy target. The poor trekkers held their fire. It was their turn to wait. Then they waited some more. 100 meters, 50 meters, 40 meters, testing nerve and discipline. At 30 meters, the defenders opened up with their loopers, the bags of buckshot. The front line of Aman Debeli went down. Some warriors tripped over their dead comrades, but they came on still. They reached the abatis of thorn trees and stakes in the ground that formed the outer ring of the lager's defences. This slowed their charge. Most of the Amandabeli were forced to stop and formed a second large target offered to the Boers, who were now firing constantly. Musket pans two-stepping, the sound deafening and joined by Amandabeli shouting. Some warriors managed to cut through the thorn trees and reach the wagons. A few grabbed the wheels, trying to pull the wagons apart, but the chains and the leather rimpies held fast. Waiting inside these wagons were a few of the women and the Khoisan, armed with axes. Mrs. Swanepoel and other women had prepared a few pots of boiling water, and they threw these over the attackers, who screamed and withdrew. One warrior managed to make it through the obstacle course. As he fell into the lager, a woman stood up holding a large rock, slammed it on his head, killing him. This was an apocryphal battle, extermination or survival, a desperate struggle between two ideologies. More warriors reached the wagons. Some tried to crawl over one or under, and there they were met by a rain of iron. The women and the Khoisan servants wielded their axes like Vikings. Many Amandabeli had their arms and hands cut off. Some were killed outright. Meanwhile, the men were yelling, Hia! or give to the Akhtares, and the women scrabbling to clean and load the muskets. Sarul Saliers was stabbed in his leg just above the knee. He pulled out the spear and thrust it back into the chest of the warrior who fell dead. Others outside then resorted to the usual tactic when a homestead was found to be difficult to overcome. They drew back a few feet, gathered together, and on a command threw their spears, a tactic used by all ancient armies, very difficult to avoid being hit by a wall of spears falling together unless you have a shield, and the Boers had no shields. The spears fell like darts from the sky, and Nicolas Portkita, Andres' brother, was killed, along with Portkita's brother-in-law, Piet Boerter. Many others were wounded. Clouds of blue and white smoke covered the lager. The muskets were red hot. The horses were winning and throwing up clouds of red dust. The shouting and screaming of the wounded filled the air. After 15 minutes, perhaps half an hour, no one was sure. Dama and Debele pulled back, and many Boers yelled, Hosannas! In Calibi was forced to take stock. At least 150 of his men were dead around the lager, adding to the other 200 who died fighting on the way. This was more than 300 of his 2,000. That's a very high casualty rate for any army. It wasn't over. The Boers began picking off his wounded who were lying groaning outside the lager. Some of his more inventive warriors tried to feign injury and were crawling towards the lager, but these were shot as well. His men were still in range, trying to throw their spears. The Boers shot them down methodically. Bang, bang, bang. In another half an hour of desultory back and forth, musket fire, spears, Damandabeli backed away stragglers zigzagging to avoid being another victim of the trekkers' deadly aim. Later, storytellers liked to brag about how the Boers then rode out, as was their custom in this situation, chasing the Amandebeli, but that is not what happened. Willem Pretorius, one of the survivors, was pretty clear about this, saying they would not leave their place of safety. It was too dangerous. Those who survived inside were exhausted, shaking with the effort. In shock, two of the defenders had been killed, Portkita's brother 
and his brother-in-law, Buta. By the time of final counting, it was said that 430 Ama and Debele had died. Mzilikatsi's American missionaries, who saw the warrior party return to Masecha, believed he had lost at least 300. Either way, it was a disaster for the Amandabele king. He had never experienced a massacre of this sort, not even when fighting his nemesis, Dingan. But the Boers were also in a bad way. One out of every three men were wounded, 14 in total, including Salirs who'd got that spear in his leg. Despite being in pain, he gathered everyone around and said the inevitable prayer. Their wagons were in tatters, their canopies ripped in hundreds of places by spears and assegais, their wheels damaged, all oxen and cattle, sheep and goats had been driven away. Amandabele had killed 1,000 of the cattle and skinned them, leaving the carcasses spread around the felt. For the Voortrekkers, it was disastrous. They had no oxen to draw their wagons. They were marooned here at Fachkop and had no way of knowing what was going to happen next. Within 24 hours, the hundreds of bodies lying around the lager began to decompose. The Boers tried burning some, burying others, but there were just too many. So they moved the lager 300 meters down towards the Ranosta River, manhandling the wagons with ropes and using some of the surviving horses. Still, the smell of death hung over the camp. Porquita was in trouble. He had no cows to milk, no sheep to slaughter. The game on the felt had disappeared, chased away by the hellish noise of battle. Some of the children were crying from hunger within a few days. He put out the word, and the trekkers based near Tabanchu came to his help sending 200 oxen, while Gerrit Maritz sent along a guard of burghers from a large trek party he'd led to the Tabanju area. By the middle of November 1836, Port Hita's battered party had travelled back to Tabanju, where their friend Marocca of the Baralong provided them with provisions. Methodist missionary James Archbell also came to their aid. It's an irony that after all of the horrors, it was the humanitarian missionaries and a black chief who provided the Voortrekkers in their hour of need. This Battle of Fechkop was possibly one of the most important moments on the felt since Nkleeli had been defeated at Grahamstown. If Nkleeli had overcome this group, it's likely that the Great Trek would have been stopped right there for a few years. Instead, this victory for the Voortrekkers became a key narrative, a clear sign of divine intervention. God had manifested himself and approved the Voortrekker venture. They had overcome almost impossible odds with his help, and they were encouraged to persist with confidence as long as they maintained their strict code of purity in church, in state, and in society. Furthermore, Maritz, Portkita, and other disparate Trek leaders had one main goal, one main aim right then, at this precise moment, to destroy Mzilikazi. And that was very bad news for the Ama Ndebele chief, as you'll hear next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at deslatham. Until next, salagatli.